Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year we celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. Today we had the opportunity to speak with our first major collector on the podcast, Chris Baird. Based in Dallas, Texas, or just outside Dallas, Texas, Chris Baird started with what most collectors wouldn't start with, a major 11-foot-tall painting by the artist Brian Kershiznik, which is currently on loan at the uh, Conference Center in Salt Lake City. Chris talks to us about how this painting came into his life, how he went from buying that painting to going on to collect many works by many different kinds of LDS artists in, in an a startling array of styles, media, genres, and also his involvement with the Mormon Arts Center Festival, which recently took place in New York City. I hope you enjoy this conversation that uh, we had. Welcome, Chris Baird. We're very happy to have you here. Thank you, Mike. I'm excited to be on today. Thank you. Well, you know, we haven't had anyone who is purely a collector. We've had Richard Bushman and Glenn Nelson, who are both you know, both collectors, but they're also scholars. And, um, and, and, and I was, we've always had this tagline. You, you uh, actually wrote us about this as we've been talking about this Mormon visual podcast. We talk about it as being a podcast where we interview artists, collectors, and scholars. And I think that you're the purebred. I think you're the purebred collector. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did notice that, and I've listened to all of the podcasts that you've uh, made available so far, and I kept wondering, you know, where's the guy that's like me? You know, and I do know Glenn, and I'm familiar with his collection. I consider him a good friend, so I know he's a collector. But he didn't really talk about his collection when he no. Was on, so. no. So this is kind of a first for for the podcast. So I want to hear what you mean by that by saying you didn't hear someone like you. How do you describe yourself as a collector when you talk with people or artists? Well, you know, I, I, it's hard to really describe that, but I have, I have a lifelong fascination with Mormon history and the Mormon experience. I actually started this journey as a Mormon book collector, and it, and it grew into an art collection. But I, I love the idea of people that I uh, am familiar with, right? People that I may go to church with on a Sunday, creating these beautiful works of art. And I think that, that this is the world that I want to live in. And so when I talk about creating a, specifically a contemporary Mormon art collection, I think of it very much uh, in a way of, of creating the type of world that I want to be surrounded mm -hmm. with, right? The beauty that I see in the, the Mormon art world. So you are joining us via FaceTime uh, from your office, and where do you live? I live in Arlington, Texas, one of the suburbs of uh, in the Dallas area. Is that where you're from originally? Uh, I actually was born in Utah, but we moved to Fort Worth when I was five years old, uh, grew up in the area, went on a mission to Uruguay, uh, came back to uh, Utah because my parents had moved away while I was on my mission, ended up getting married a short time later, stayed at BYU uh, for law school, and then we moved back to Texas in 1996, and we've been back here ever since. Boy, boy, that is, that's quite a journey. So you could tell me, so first of all, you and I could sit down and have some serious yerba mate yeah. together yeah. if you wanted to. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you sound like you've got a bit of a, of a Texas Texas uh, drawl uh, there. You've got a bit of a Texas accent, I guess, moving there. It's it's been bred in you. But let me ask you a question. How do you pronounce the following words? M I L K. Milk. <laughs> Not milk. No, okay. No. Um W H E E L. Wheel. Okay, you're 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 Texan in your pronunciation, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, sure. That... Yeah, it rubs off. <laughs> we we wear it proudly here in Texas, by the way. Well, I want to get straight to a work of art that you own that a lot of people will be familiar with. And it's not often we get to talk to the person who owns it, lives with it. And it's also not often that we get that person sharing that with us. And this is the the the, the work by Brian Kershiznik that is currently on view 
in the, uh, the, the, the church, the LDS Church Conference Center. And tell us, tell us what it is. Yeah, so the painting is called She Will Find What Is Lost, sometimes uh, described using the more grammatical phrase, She Will Find That Which Is Lost. And it was painted by Brian Kershiznik uh, over a period of several months, finished, I think, in 2013. So let's just start with a physical description of what this is. It is enormous. What are the, the, the measurements, roughly? Yeah, roughly 11 feet high and 8 feet wide. It is a monumental piece. It has a number of figures that um, are, are are crowded together, going from the top of the painting um, and crowding together in a almost great wave that comes down, and they are touching with their hands a woman who is sitting at the base near the center of the painting. And by way, the way she's dressed, she looks like a mortal person who's grounded in the physical um, world and these other figures through their their floating and their grouping together, it's clear that they are they're angelic, some kind of supernatural grouping of figures that are around her. And she's not looking at them; they are looking at her and towards her. But um, it doesn't even seem like she feels the entire weight of them on her being, even though they they look like they could be. They could, they could be landing on top of her with a great deal of weight. They're, they're weightless on her. Right. Um, what did Kershiznik, um, cause you've, you know him, you know, Brian Kershiznik. I do. Yes. Um, and it means something personally to you before we get to what it means to you, which is a great, great, um, story. Do you know what it meant to Brian when he was painting it? I, I do know what it what it meant to Brian when he was painting it. And I've been privileged enough to be in the room uh, when people have asked him that question. And it's interesting because he answers that question uniformly every time by saying, I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, And he says it in a very polite way. But his thinking goes like this. Everybody brings their own experiences to this painting. And everyone sees in this painting something different. And I think that he's very concerned about taking away that, that experience from people by telling him what he was thinking when he was painting it. So he's very content, uh, as am I, to let other people have their own experiences with the painting. I'm happy to talk about mine. I'm happy to talk about the experiences my wife has had with it and that other people have had with it. Um, but I think Brian's very wise to allow people to come and uh, experience their own uh, experience with the painting. I'd like to hear what your experience was with it um, when you first saw it, what it came to mean over time, or maybe it came to mean the same thing that it meant when you initially saw it. Yeah, so I first became aware of the painting in the fall of 2013. Uh, I run a little Mormon history study group here in the Dallas area with my friend Adam Miller, and we had a guest speaker who knew Brian. And, of course, he'd seen some of the works that we had on our walls here in the house. He knew that we knew Uh, we were familiar with Brian's work and he said, Hey, I've got to show you this painting. I was in Brian's studio and Brian allowed me to take a photograph of this unfinished painting. And that was, he showed us on his phone, uh, a a photograph of the unfinished uh, painting. She will find Mm -hmm. what is lost. We, of course we reacted to it, but it was a very small image. Um, we realized scale, scale matters a lot, doesn't it? When you see it in person. Yeah. This painting scale matters. And, uh, you know, seeing it on a phone was nice, but we didn't experience the full wane of the painting in that, in that moment. We did see the painting, uh, you know, over the holidays, we, we saw that it was becoming available in reproduction. Uh, and, you know, as, as a, as a collector, we love the idea of being able to obtain the image, but we've kind of turned the corner uh, and, and made a commitment that we really want to invest in original art, not in reproductions. And so, well, let, let me let me stop you there. Why? Uh, well, you're going to ask me to articulate something that I'm probably not going to do very well. It's all right. Uh, it's all right. Th- there is nothing like an original painting, an original piece of work. I love to see the hand of the artist in the piece, the depth of the colors. Um, the full range of expression and emotion that you can see in an original piece of work. Uh, and, and frankly, our walls are, are covered. 
um, at this point. And so while it would be great to buy every piece of work that we respond to, you know, we have to make a, a decision, you know, what are we going to do? What does the collection become? And so we made a decision to kind of stay away from reproductions as much as we can. So flash forward to March of 2014, we're in Salt Lake for a uh, uh, spring break and a, and a little family event. My wife and I had gone to the Desert Book flagship store and there uh, in the flagship store was the limited edition uh, reproduction of the painting. And it was a larger format than what we had seen before. And I was prepared on the spot to kind of make an exception to my rule, right? I love this image so much, I'm gonna buy uh, the reproduction. Um, my wife came over, I asked my wife to come over and take a look at it. And unbeknownst to me, uh, the second that she took a look at it, she was having what I think could only be described as a spiritual experience. Now to understand that, you have to go back in time. She, about in 2006, um, through a series of uh, medical complications, she was undergoing a chemotherapy treatment mm -hmm. and was uh, in a very... How old, would she, how old would she have been at this point? Uh, she was uh, 30... 35 or 36 at the time. So very, so young, young going through chemotherapy. Yeah. With five children at home and with a husband who worked a lot and had a lot of church responsibilities. And so uh, most of her family lived out of state and uh, she was feeling very isolated. One of the well-known side effects of chemotherapy is that people get very depressed. And yeah. so she was on an antidepressant but it just wasn't working, and it was a very, very difficult time for her. She's talked openly about this, so, so I'm not telling you anything that would make her uncomfortable. Right. But in that moment, in that moment, you know, as she was kind of doubting her faith in God and, and really trying to reach out and figure out what it all meant, she had this, this vision occur to her, and it was the scripture from Second Kings that talks about there, there, there are more with us than be with them. And she never really had articulated that to me before. We talked about her depression. But in that moment, in the Desert Book flagship store, she says to me, that's it. That's what I saw. That's when I was going through my chemotherapy treatment and having such a difficult time. That was the answer to my prayer. Mm. So there it was in Brian's painting um, right in front of her. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, this question we have within the church um, of what goes on on the other side. I think that there's a, I was, I was telling my mother the other day and my mother is someone who uh, her entire life is given to family history. She's um, been, I think we all know the person who is the, the, the one who preserves the letters, who does the fam, the, the oral histories, and who even has spiritual experiences where specific people, names, and events come to mind that help them uh, get through moments. And I was telling my mother the other day, I said, you know, I think that there's a... that It, it may be that in some ways Mormons have more akin to the Chinese and the way that they look at ancestors and their role in their life than, than, uh, than other Christians. And she laughed at me and first and said, uh, oh, I don't, I don't know if that's true. I said, well, you know, you look at, you look at how we see the interactions of people in the other side. I'm not a theologian, but it's, it's not in a lot of our scriptures. There are occasional moments you get uh, revelations about, the dead, baptism for the dead, what the dead and, and doctrine and covenants. And there are some in the Pearl of Great Price. It seems to me that what Kershiznik has captured here isn't undoctrinal by any means, but it's also not something that is expressed explicitly in a lot of texts. It's, it's kind of ground that he has, but it's, it, it's the, and the, the church that they would have the print in their flag store their flagship store tells you that it's not, it's not uh, incongruent either. It's a really fascinating thought. Yeah. I, Mike, I would argue that one of the things that makes this painting very unique is that it expresses a unique Mormon theological idea. That is uh, the, the nearness of our ancestors, uh, the, the, 
the veil being thin, as they say, right? There is some some doctrinal basis for it. I agree with you that there's not a lot in the canonized scripture, but there is certainly this idea uh, all the way back to Joseph Smith that we are in some sort of sociality with those who have gone on before and maybe even with those who are yet to come. And I think that that is uh, a very distinctly uniquely Mormon idea and is one of the reasons that people really react to this piece. That's how I react to it too. When I look at it, I was surprised the first time I experienced it was in the conference center where it hangs right now on the, on the lower ground floor. Um, it's in a prominent place. Um, and, and I immediately, it's, it, it, at first it, it seemed to me that there was this kind of generic idea of angels. But the more I looked at it, the more I realized he picked angels of different sexes, different ages. There are children there. There are people middle-aged. There are those with white hair. It's, you know, I could, I, and I immediately started thinking of individuals that I knew that I'd always kind of imagined as being a part of my life in one way or another who had passed on. And because of Kershiznik's style is, is he's not by any stretch, uh, a naturalist or a realist with his figurative art. He keeps it somewhat abstract. That means that you can, you can, these people aren't specific individuals often, and you can project onto them. Um, and, and, and that makes me, it makes me happy. And it seems consistent that it's, con- that he, when he's asked to describe it, therefore lets people project them rather than giving them a handbook of this is what every one of them is. Right. right. This is my Aunt Judy. This is my uncle. Exactly. And I think, again, I think that's one of the things that makes this piece very unique, right? Typically, at least in the Mormon artistic tradition, when we go around looking at pieces of art, they, you know, they're intended to tell a specific story or maybe teach a lesson. Maybe it's a New Testament narrative and those are all fine and good, but I, I think that one of the things that's very unique about this piece is that it invites the viewer to participate in the piece in a way that that I I just haven't seen in other hmm. uh, other pieces of Mormon art, and certainly not other pieces of Mormon art that are hanging in the conference center. So people literally want to participate in this painting. Um, when when it, right immediately after it was first hung in the conference center, I stayed over uh, that weekend. It was general conference weekend. And I, I, I went over to look at the painting, and I wanted to see how other people interacted with it. And it was fascinating to me. Within just a few minutes of my arrival, I saw people taking pictures in front of the painting. And within a few minutes of that, people started standing or kneeling in front of the painting assuming the position of the woman who was seated so that when when they could take the picture it would look like the angel's hands were on the head of the person who was in the photograph not the woman who was seated there in other words the first reaction of people to this painting was to participate in a, in a very real, real way so you can look at those angels and say these aren't just generic angels, right? Think about Brian's pain, painting of nativity. We're familiar with the idea of herald angels, right? It's scripturally supported. Uh, and many times we view those as kind of generic type uh, <laughs> angels, right? But these angels are not those angels, right? These angels are her angels. They're the angels that care about her in a very unique way, want her to be happy, uh, maybe want to give her some information and to the extent that people participate in the painting that way, those angels become their angels, right? Everybody knows somebody who has passed away. And if you spend any time looking at this painting, you're going to be looking at those angels and seeing, you know, how do those angels relate to, relate to me and to my experience? So I've got several thoughts that I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out in order or even get to all of them that you've just brought up by this line of, 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 of thought on this work. First one is I, I think that in in the church we have not entirely established the use of images. Images are often used for illustrative purposes, even works that weren't originally intended, like Carl Block or Heinrich Hoffman or Harry Anderson or a lot of artists that, whose work is done today. We we put in manuals 
and we put in chapels, and they are used as aids to lesson manuals and specific topics. If you are Catholic or if you're Buddhist, images are often put on in physical places that you visit, and you're meant to have a spiritual moment with them. Karl Blocks, for instance, they're altarpieces. Candles are lit in front of them as you're making a prayer. And I've noticed in chapels, this is something I've, I've started to collect images of. This is going to make me sound a little creepy. Of people, when they put online pictures of their baptismal photographs, they often stand in front of the paintings that are in the lobby of their local chap, cha, uh, uh, chapel. And um, there aren't many images that we as members of the church stand in front of and take images. So to know that someone is using this image as an opportunity for a photograph where they are standing in as the woman, that is a fascinating use that I don't see anywhere else in the church. I don't see people standing in front of the sculpture in Temple Square of Joseph and Oliver Cowdery receiving the Aaronic Priesthood and pretending that John the Baptist's sculpture's hands are on them. Right. Right? Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure that people listening to this will come up with their own examples, and I would encourage them to, to post them. But it then begs the question for me of this. Here you have an 11-foot-tall painting that you own and you have put on loan to the church that is being used in this very communal, participatory way. What, what responsibility do you feel, if any, and nobody would begrudge you, to keep it in the public versus at home? I mean, how do you start considering what the use of this painting is and where it's seen? Yeah, so, so uh, let, me, yeah, let me just finish that story, and that is after... After I saw a couple of people uh, taking their photograph in front of the in front of the painting, I noticed that people were were actually bumping up against the painting and putting their shoulder up against the canvas. And I thought after the first time that it would be kind of an anomaly, and then I saw three or four people do it, and I I just had this sinking feeling. Right, this painting this painting's not going to last <laughs> the weekend with all the people jabbing their shoulder into it. So. There were there was a an a set of stanchions, you know, these things that kind of keep people in line, uh, sitting unused just a few yards down the hallway, and fortunately there were some folks working secure. There was a security table there, and I walked down there, and of course they didn't know me, but I, I explained to them very quickly my relationship to the painting and what was happening, and asked if we could move the stanchions down into the front of the painting. Uh, and they, to their credit, they said, absolutely no problem. We moved them I was, I was going to say, because I've been to that building and dealt with the security there, that after talking with three different supervisors and filling out forms in triplicate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, well, fortunately, we didn't have that experience. We moved them down there. And as far as I know, the stanchions have never moved. Every time I go back, they're in this, literally in the same position they were, that I left them on. I, the gave a, I gave a tour there last week, or was the week before. And um, had maybe 50 people with me. And it was maybe the, 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 the painting that people stood in front of for the longest period of time and took the most pictures of. So the stanchions were still there. I can report that. Yeah. Well, that's good. And to, to, to your larger question about, you know, having it in a public place versus being at home, we've had so many positive reactions to this painting. And, of course, you know, I didn't paint it, right? It, it's not, you know, you know, you know, in a way, it's not really my painting. But the thought of having it sitting in my living room, where nobody else, or at least very few other people, could experience, began to be kind of problematic for me and my wife. And so, we've actually begun a process that will culminate in the painting being owned by the church, and with the expectation that it will remain on display in the conference center. I think it's the perfect place for the peace. There are limited places within the church or as members of the church where original art can be experienced. And this is one of those magical uh, moments where everything lines up, where um, the church wants it. There's a place for it to be displayed and to be experienced in a way that makes it uh, uh, useful to a larger public. But that's not true of all, all original art. You've got a lot of original art in your home. 
Um, and I guess that's this is where this is an exception, right? This is obviously something that it, that could be seen as a public piece, right? Yeah, th- this this piece. I mean, as far as my wife and I are concerned, this piece is bigger than us. Uh, we we have a, a wonderful contemporary Mormon art collection, and we love to share it with people, you know, that want to come and take a look at it. I've discovered that my passion for this exceeds that of most of our visitors. Um, but this piece is just so unique. You know, one of the other fun experiences we had at the conference center, we have visitation, right? We go see the painting that we that we own from time to time. And one time while we were there, um, there was this couple coming through on a tour, not members of the church. They stopped to take a look at the painting. My wife couldn't resist and go start a conversation with them. Within a few minutes, they had taken a picture of themselves in front of the painting. Uh, they were they were not members of the LDS church. Uh, we had a great visit with them. And then as we left, we went back over to the Deseret Bookstore uh, across you know Temple Square, and we found those same folks there in the store buying a copy of the painting. They bought a print to take it home. Wow. It was their souvenir of the trip. So the reaction piece has been remarkable. So you live in Dallas, or outside of Dallas, and you have a large collection of LDS art. I assume that you have people come to your house on a somewhat regular basis who are not members of the church. Um, how do people who are non-members react to your collection of LDS art? Uh, in interesting ways, in ways that I wouldn't necessarily have predicted. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be good friends with Kirk and Amy Richards, and we hosted a home show for for them here in 2011. We invited everybody we, we knew. We have to say his, his full general authority name, J. Kirk Richards. Oh, sorry, J. Kirk Richards. <laughs> sorry. Uh, that's fine. So, and uh, we invited everybody we knew. I invited co- uh, colleagues, coworkers, neighbors, friends. And somewhat to, to our surprise, the reaction to uh, Richards' works uh, was, uh, was more heightened among the non-members, meaning at least in in the Dallas area, there are a lot of people interested in religious art, New Testament narratives, and and Kirk's fresh painting style. Without fail, I think uh, every one of the non-members who came went home with at least one of his prints. What did those conversations look like? Can you give me an example? Well, they just, you know, uh, I don't know that I have any specific example of of non-members' reaction to Kirk's pieces. Um, but my wife told me a funny story about uh, some of the Jason Metcalf pieces. We have a large living room, and we had hung some of Jason Metcalf's pieces from his show in New York called High to Kolob, and there are these, these large, there's a large white canvas um, and it, that looks like a starburst. And we had some deliveries made one day. I think it was actually some art, and the guys were bringing it into the front room, and they looked up and saw the Jason Metcalf piece, and they were just completely blown away, right? They, they didn't have the tools to process what that piece was all about. And, and honestly, I think that that's the reaction a lot of people have when they come here. They, they're, they're just, they don't know how to react to our collection. Do you find um, that people are more open to talking about doctrine and Mormon theology in general when it's an art piece that is the basis for a discussion rather than this is what, this, hey, I'd really like to have a family home evening with you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and make no mistake, right, when people come into our house, they know that we are Christian. <laughs> they, 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 and uh, there's no way that they can miss that. And so it does open the door to some interesting conversations. But um, again, I, I don't know what this says about Mormon culture or culture writ large. I know very few people that own original artwork and have it hanging on their on their walls. They just don't have uh, the background or the experience or maybe the, the interest well, let's, to engage in the discussion. Let me ask you some nuts and bolts questions about collecting art. So first of all, what was the first work of original art that you bought? Um, the first original piece was was a, a, a set of three small landscapes that we bought in a little town in central Texas called Fredericksburg, a local central Texas artist. Bright colors, beautiful Texas hill country. Three little bitty pieces. Uh, we, we just kind of liked them, and we decided to buy, buy them. We asked the gallerist there, hey, you know, where do people hang pieces like this? 
and they were kind of small. And she said, well, you know, they can, you can hang them in an entryway or in a bathroom. And my wife and I kind of looked at each other and laughed, right? Who hangs original paintings in their bathroom? And, uh, well, those pieces are hanging in our bathroom today. <laughs> it's <laughs> so bigger than so it would it be... be- would it be fair to say that those three paintings were kind of happenstance? They were kind of a, a higher-end souvenir from an experience of traveling? They were. They were. Um, at, at what point did you make the switch to buying something that was religious? So we moved to, to uh, the house that we live in now in 2008. We moved out of a, a smaller house into a much larger house. We had a lot of empty walls. And because of my experiences with the Mormon artist group, which was founded by Glenn Nelson, I was very interested in fine press. And Glenn was always moving in a direction that was highlighting the work of, of Mormon artists. So I'd gotten to know Glenn, uh, and we decided that we wanted to pursue having some nice works of art in our home uh, that were executed by LDS artists. And so I just started doing some research online and stumbled aco- across uh, J. Kirk Richards' work, and that was ultimately the first, I'll call it, you know, big piece that we bought was a result of my search, literally going to Google, typing in the phrase Mormon artist and sifting through the results to mm-hmm. see what I could find. Um, so when when you say that your experiences with the Mormon artist group, which Glenn Nelson's based out of New York, and he holds a lot of... Uh, and. He's now, um, and you're involved also in the Mormon Arts Center and the festival that they just had. But how did you get connected with Glenn Nelson? What was your relationship with the Mormon Arts Artist Group, and, and, and how, did, how did that happen? So my relationship with Glenn, again, started as a result of my uh, book collecting uh, efforts. One of the books that he published uh, very early on was a book by Richard Bushman called On the Road with Joseph Smith. And it was a story about his experiences um, of of being on the road promoting his book, Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling. Well, the Mormon Artist Group published um, On the Road with Joseph Smith in a very special edition that came in a a custom-made cherry wood uh, binding. So it was kind of a unique piece for a Mormon book collector. Once I discovered what Glenn was doing, uh, I've, I think I've bought every piece that he's made available since then. So I've gotten to know Glenn pretty well. We're, um, uh, he, he was here in my house of just a few months ago to take a look at the collection and to do some other fun things. But my, uh, you know, as soon as I heard about the, the Mormon Art Center Festival in New York, I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. Ultimately, my role in that was just that of a donor, and as a participant, uh, we made a little bit of a contribution, and then we we made a week of it with our kids. We went to New York and experienced that whole thing. Loved every minute of it. That's great. That's great. I was out there too. I didn't see you um, out there, and maybe it's just because we were there was a lot going on during that that uh, that experience. Yeah, there was a lot going on, and it was fun to see so many of the people I, that I knew and, and meet a lot of new people. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet you that time, but. Was there anything in particular about the Mormon Arts Center Festival that, stu- that, that stuck out to you that was particularly meaningful about the event? I loved the interaction of the artists and the academics, right? I think that um, if we're going to move the Mormon artistic community in a direction that's um, you know, something other than just the kinds of things that, that might be bought in, in mass quantities at a at a retail store and and move it more towards uh, a fine art or a fine art tradition, we're going to need the help of an academic community. So I think what Glenn and Richard are doing is a very wise thing. Um, I was particularly touched by uh, Terrell Givens' keynote address uh, regarding the creation of Mormon community. And I I was fascinated. We could could talk a little bit more about that. but Yeah, let's do it. Well, I, th- I thought it was interesting, you know, Terrell, uh, Terrell is probably one of Mormonism's uh, leading thinkers today, you know, outside of the general authorities. Um, he's a theologian, he's written several books, and he offered the keynote address at the Mormon Arts Center Festival called Forging the Mormon Identity. So he, he went through um, 
you know, all of his remarks. And I was really quite surprised when he ended his remarks by showing a picture of She Will Find. He called it She Will Find That Which Is Lost, which is one of its titles. And he began to describe why he thought that painting was so meaningful. And we've talked about that a little bit already, so I'm not going to I'm not going to duplicate that. But what I found so fascinating about that was that here is here's one of uh, one of Mormonism's leading thinkers, and he is being taught something by one of Mormonism's leading artists, right? So there's this idea that a picture, uh, what is it, uh, a thousand words, you can, a picture says a thousand words or something like that. Brian Kersisnik was able to say something in this painting, she will find what is lost, that Terrell Givens, uh, really reacted very strongly to, and he learned something from. And I love that there is an opportunity now because of the Mormon Arts Center and the other developments that are happening in the Mormon artistic community for artists and academics to be in dialogue with each other, to enhance the work of each other uh, in telling the full Mormon story. Well, let me ask you a question about your collecting habits, if you don't mind. This is like, again, like I said, it's a bit nuts and bolts. But a lot of collectors, when they start collecting original art, um, they start in one place and the kinds of arts they buy at first um, are things that help them explore the environment. But then they once they get a footing and an understanding of what the universe is that they've they're starting to participate in they kind of they go through various generations of the kind of art they're collecting until finally they figure out what they really like and and what they're really interested in and 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 yeah. to start with kirk as out of the gate after you bought those three small landscapes that's a pretty good beginning place for a work of art what are the kinds of other things that you've bought? Why have you bought them? And is, is there a larger strategy to what you're buying or is it just what you like? Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a great question. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. The, I feel passionately about the desire to support the greater Mormon artistic community. And I define that very broadly, right? We could spend a lot of time talking about what is Mormon art. We'll save that for another another day. Yeah, the Mormon Arts Center Festival spent a lot of time on that. We'll <laughs> right. we'll direct people towards their website, and Absolutely. that's great. It's a worthwhile discussion. But so I, I I I describe that community very broadly, but I feel very passionately about supporting it. Um, my tastes have changed over time, and I don't know that they have settled in one specific area. Uh, I am fascinated. Every time I find something new, uh, I'm I'm drawn to it, right? I feel a, a little bit like a firefly drawn to, uh, you know, a bug zapper because uh, I, my attention span can be sometimes very short. Are you are you pretty I, open? Is it style? Is it is it a subject? Is it everything? Yeah, I am mostly drawn to contemporary works of Mormon artists. Uh, I know that, for example, your your professional interest is a little more. Uh, uh, you know, focused on uh, traditional forms of art. But so, I, you know, my interests have gone in a contemporary uh, Mormon uh, artistic direction uh, to the point that, you know, I've started with, with a, a lot of the pieces by Kirk, uh, several pieces by Brian uh, Kershiznik, uh, and now I'm starting to explore some of the more abstract forms of Mormon artistic expression, Jason Metcalf being a great example of that, uh, and some younger artists, people like uh, Sarah Peterson, who I just recently ran across, and Daniel Bartholomew, who I count as a friend, right? I, I am fascinated by the full breadth of Mormon artistic So some expression. of these um, less traditional and more contemporary experimental works, like those by... Um, Jason Metcalf require you to install things, not just hang them on a wall. So is it fair to say that uh, this has become a lifestyle? Absolutely. Absolutely a lifestyle. Um, and like I said earlier, it's a lifestyle that we are actively cultivating, right? Uh, I, I ran into Colby Sanford at the Mormon Love Life his Center work. Festival. Wonderful in person, too. 
Yeah, he's a great guy. I, I had met him only very briefly prior to that. But since then, I have bought one of his pieces, and it's hanging in our kitchen, and it's it's a self-portrait. He's, he's holding one of his children. And so, you know, I, I walk into my kitchen, and I see a portrait of Colby Sanford hanging on my kitchen wall. So uh, it, it, I see another painting by, by Brian Kersisnik, and I, in my living room, there's a painting by Kirk Richards. And so I have this intimate relationship with these artists, right? They don't spend any time thinking about me, which is completely appropriate. But I literally think about these artists every time you I make, walk in. You, you make it almost sound like it's a compulsive stalker syndrome, which I don't think it is. But but it's but it, but it is a, a question about do you feel the need to get to know the artist personally if you own their work too? I enjoy that a lot. I don't know that it's a need, but I enjoy it. Right? There's there's another a debate that, that goes along the lines of is it better to to buy things or better to buy experiences? And for me personally. Being an, a Mormon art collector has opened the door to both things and experiences, and I have found that to be very fulfilling. And frankly, uh, you know, some of these artists have become very good friends of mine, and I consider that to be one of the best outcomes of this. You know, it's it's an it's an interesting question. There's a lot of neurology that goes on when it comes to how people value and experience art, and there's something that I encourage everybody to look it up called the labor heuristic. Um, you can, there's a Wikipedia article on it that if you if you describe the process of an artist or an artwork to somebody, well, let's say you start off with an artwork, you give it to them, and you don't tell them anything about it, a viewer, and you say, what is this worth? They'll give a value to it. And then if you give them even a few sentences about the person who made it or the process of making it, it increases on average by 300% from their original estimate. And it, it, it's interesting to me. I don't know if it existed as much as a culture as it does today. I don't know if you, Chris, would have been able to experience art and artists the way you do now in the same way 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We've always had a large community of artists. But for the most part, um, there was living in Dallas away from Salt Lake and having a relationship with artists and having original art would have been a very, very unusual thing. It makes me wonder, um, does it feel unusual to you? Is it something that you, you've been, once you get plugged into that community, have you, is it something that you feel like you're creating from scratch or is it something that uh, these artists are anxious to be a part of, of, of the community that you've already established among yeah, friends I, and scholars. I think that there is a lot of energy in that community right now, and I am thrilled to be a part of it and to see what's happening. I do, I do get disappointed, right? So I'm, I follow many of these artists on social media, and I get on their email lists, and I, I, I look at the galleries. And so I'm not able to do everything I would like to do, right? I can't go to every show opening. But what I have found is that because my interests uh, are so closely aligned uh, to what those guys are doing, I tend to plan my trips accordingly. And as a result, my efforts are much more focused. So, you know, th there are things happening in Provo that people aren't doing. Uh, there are things happening in Salt Lake that people aren't doing because they're there and they can do them anytime. Well, when I come into town, I go do them because that's why I'm there in you just gorge on it. You're you just it's like a feast. Absolutely. Right. You can ask, you know, hey, Chris, when, when are your next two trips to Utah? And I will tell you they're, you know, one of them's already been planned around the BYU Museum of Art and uh, the Church History Museum's next opening in in later in the fall. So when you come to town, what does your itinerary look like? You've got BYU Museum of Art. You're planning it around the Church Museum show. What is that show, by the way, that you're excited At about? The Church History Museum? Yes. So the Church History Museum is planning a show based on the works of Joseph Paul Vorst, who is right. a, a, a Mormon artist who's not very well known yet, but will be by the end of the year. Uh, born in Germany, moved to the United States, and uh, lived the rest of his life in the greater St. Louis area uh, as an LDS artist. Um, part of the school that is best personified by Thomas Hart Benton, known as Regent. Right. It's very Benton-esque, Depression-era yeah. yeah. images. Fantastic work, but the church is doing a, uh, a solo show of his work, kind of a, a lifetime retrospective, and 
Uh, we've loaned a couple of pieces to that show, and we are thrilled to go see it when it opens. So what are the galleries that you visit um, when you come to town? So I've done business with uh, <laughs> several of the galleries in town. Uh, I know Brad Kramer uh, of Written Vision very well. Uh, there's a, a family connection there. Uh, I've been to Meyer Gallery up in Park City. Uh, been to Alum Gallery, which I understand is relocated to uh, St. George in Salt Lake. Um, so, you know, I, I try to get around to those folks. And then also, we love to go see uh, the open studio events. We were in uh, Provo last fall when Caitlin Connolly had her open studio event. Uh, we've been fortunate to, to be in town when Brian Kershiznik has some of his events or Kirk has some of his. And we love those, right? Because all the people that are part of that community tend to show up and uh, and be excited for those as well. When you buy things, um, how often do you buy sight unseen something online? Quite a bit. In fact, we bought She Will Find What Is Lost without having seen the original piece. So it's not something you feel compelled to always see in person? No. I, I mean, sometimes... Um, you know, sometimes the piece is so compelling that we're willing to go ahead and just move on it. Other times, uh, I'll ask somebody to send, you know, see if they can send me better pictures or send somebody up that might have better eyes, or I'll just wait. But for, for better or for worse, we do end up buying a lot of our pieces based on an image. So I've got just a couple of final questions for you um, as we're winding down. Uh, the first one is... Uh, as someone who's collecting LDS art, who's in connection with a lot of LDS artists, um, I love this German word zeitgeist, meaning the, the feeling that is going on right now, the Kool-Aid that we're all drinking at the moment. What is, in your opinion, the zeitgeist of Mormon art? I think it's very positive. I love the energy. I love the collegiality. I love that people are willing to support each other's works. I, frankly, I was stunned at the reaction to the Mormon Art Center Festival, both in terms of, of the number of artists who attended and the academics who attended, the, the donors who were willing to put up money to make that happen. It feels like there's something very special happening in the Mormon artistic world right now. Um, I don't think it's always been this way. I think that it's been a little bit more of a closed community. Uh, I don't think that the artists have always been willing to support each other uh, in this way. Um, and I'm sure there are things that are happening outside of my view because I'm not there in it all the time. But I have never seen uh, anything quite like it. The energy is just phenomenal. So let me ask you a question about your collection and its future. We live at a time, I, I sit on the board of the Springville Museum of Art, which for a very long time has been a place where contemporary art has been shown and been collected. And they are um, an institution that uh, continues to, I, I think all institutions have a limited amount of space and they have become increasingly um, selective about the kinds of things that they have. Um, if you were to pack all of your things in a truck that you own, and we were near the end of your life. <laughs> um, where do you imagine your collection being seen in the future? Where do you, is there an eventual home for it in your mind? Uh, thank you for realizing my wife's first uh, worst fears, right? <laughs> <laughs> there doesn't have to be. Yeah. My, my wife and my children are continually reminding me that after I'm gone, they're going to have to figure out what to do with all of this. But, it, but, but, but while you're thinking of an answer, this is kind of, I'm sorry for the for for interrupting it, but I think this is where I'm I'm going mentally, is I think that there are four things that are needed for every viable art community. The first one is people making art. The second one is people buying and selling it. The third one is people who are talking about it, scholars, critics, what we are doing today. And then the final one is a destination for it where it's canonized. And we have... A lot of people buying it, a lot of people making it, not as many people buying and selling it as those who are making it. What we're doing and what the Mormon Arts Center are doing are people talking about it, but the destinations aren't as many, as numerous as they could be. And maybe yeah. there isn't an answer. That's what I, I guess what I'm asking is what is the destination that you envision that either exists or should exist? 
Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And I think that the very short answer is, I don't think there exists a location today that I would be enthusiastic about, uh, you know, just kind of delivering the entire collection to. In my perfect world, we would see the rise of a contemporary Mormon art museum uh, devoted to contemporary Mormon artwork. Of course, again, we could we could we could argue about what that means for a religion that's only 180 years old. But you know, the traditional stopping points have different kinds of purposes, right? Mm-hmm. The church's collection is phenomenal, but we're not going to see all of the works that the church owns. The Springfield Museum of Art is phenomenal, but it has a much greater purpose than just contemporary Mormon art. Um, Where would you see that museum? Where would you see the museum? I don't know. I don't know. I I know that uh, the Mormon Art Center uh, would ultimately like to have something like that. Clearly, they're the first out of the gate, and if they're successful, uh, that remains a possibility. I am concerned that New York may not be the right place for that. Um, I think that Utah is going to is going to ultimately just do the nature of the density of the the LDS population. The greater Mormon population is probably the the natural spot for something like that. But whether that can be made to work, I guess, remains to be hmm. seen. Well, it's been it's been a real privilege to talk with you, and I know we've only gotten to a small amount of the things that you and I have had on our list of things to talk about. Maybe maybe we could do this again. Would you be open to talking again? I, I would love to do it again, Mike. If you, if you're brave enough to have me back on. I'd like to thank Chris Baird for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see works we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. Go to Facebook, our website, and Instagram to also learn about our upcoming exhibition celebrating 50 years of LDS art with 50 works by 50 artists, opening on September 12th and running through General Conference. We look forward to, uh, to sharing that with everyone. Thank you again, everyone. Thank you.